You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. He's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Good morning and welcome to Second Captain Saturday. We'll be with you for the next hour to help ease you into the weekend. Owen, Murph and Ken all here. Hi, guys. Hey, Owen. Owen how, how are you? I'm great. I'm just back from a very enjoyable trip to Port Rush where the locals are going absolutely bonkers for the British Open golf. Ah, very good. Although I have to report they are still in a state of shock over poor old Rory McIlroy. Well, yeah. long story Put short, through the ringer, all right, didn't he? The most famous golfer ever to come out of Northern Ireland is playing the biggest tournament ever held on this whole island, but he hasn't even made it as far as the weekend. His chances pretty much destroyed by the very first shot of his opening round. Now, I was listening on the to the radio coverage up there on the way home yesterday morning when they got a sports psychologist on. Yeah. Usually, you see. I think you see where I'm going with this. Usually you see psychologists rolled out in the news media after some horrendous atrocity. Yeah. And they come on and tell you what the perpetrator may have been thinking, even though they have no actual <laughs> knowledge of what the perpetrator was thinking. Well, that tactic is now being used in Northern Ireland yeah. to figure out what happened to a 30-year-old man who took more goals than he usually does to get a little white ball into mm. a slightly larger hole. The well, psychologists... I mean, you make it sound so simple, well, but it didn't diagnosis? look that simple on, thir- on Thursday afternoon. What well, the di- diagnosis, Ken, was that he had to put that first round behind him. Okay. Refocus, reset, get rid of the negative emotions and think about what was going to happen the following day. Which he did, just didn't quite get rid of all of those negative emotions, ended up missing mm. the cut by one shot. But the psychologist was being peppered with questions like, what would have happened to Rory when he got back to his hotel room last night? Would he have meditated? Would he have talked to friends? <laughs> <laughs> it's just madness. So they're going mad for it. Why not? Why not? Yeah, Especially well, hopefully they'll be going mad for Shane Lowry. That's it. Shane Lowry now leading the charge, so hopefully he'll go well today. And you might even be watching the third round already while listening to us. And that's not a problem. We don't mind. But we suggest you watch with the sound turned right down for the next hour because we have a brilliant guest coming up for you. Katrina Crow has been described as Ireland's premier archivist and one of the country's most respected social and cultural commentators. She was the head of special projects at the National Archives until her retirement in 2016. And she will, I'm sure, be incredible company on the show this morning. The biggest question, as always, is whether or not she can make an impact on the standings in our greatest non-sports person, sports person competition. What does she have to beat, Murph? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Well, we got off to a strong start last weekend with the kid brother of Johnny Swisher Mitchell, Senator George Mitchell, that is, scoring 81 points on the first show of the series. He was able to avail of Rule 63, Paragraph 7, Clause 2 of my scoring (laughs) algorithm, the Saving Our Country rule, to give it its proper name, to get himself five bonus points. Don't think Katrina can claim that, but uh, we shall see. We will see. That's a target she has to aim for anyway. If you want to pop us a text during this chat, it's the usual number, 51551, or tweet us at Second Captains. Coming right up, it's Katrina Crow on Second Captains. Saturday. Still 
That's Angel Olsen kicking things off on Second Cap Saturday with Shut Up and Kiss Me. Our guest this morning spent more than 40 years working at the National Archives. She managed the Irish Census Online Project, widely regarded as the most successful online educational project ever undertaken in Ireland. She's curating a series of events at the Galway International Arts Festival at the moment. And today she finally gets the opportunity to revel in the success of the Claire Hurling team of the 1990s. Katrina Crow, you're welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. Your father is from Clare, so we can get into that a little bit later. But you grew up in Dublin? I grew up in Dublin, but I had the good fortune to be dispatched like many uh, children of country parents down to my father's place in Clare during the summer where you weren't allowed to sit about and take it easy. My Aunt Mary would greet me Mm -hmm. with the phrase, if you think you're coming down here to be reading books all summer, you have another thing coming. (laughs) So one had to work and do things. And it was actually a great privilege to witness life as it was lived for centuries by people in Europe. In a thatched cottage where somebody cooked over an open fire, I had to go to the well for water about half a mile up the road when I was a little girl. So I know exactly the weight of a pail of water, (laughs) which is the same weight that a lot of women still know all over the world today. And I never take running water for granted because of that experience. No sanitation, as my aunt used to say, there's acres of toilet. (laughs) Uh, She was a great woman, I miss her sorely. So I had a mixture of an urban, a suburban Dublin upbringing and exposure to the countryside, which was terrific. When you were in Dublin then, were you largely just reading books, as your auntie seemed to imply? I was trying very hard to do so. Now, when I was a little girl, I I was fairly active in the sense that the seasons on Dublin streets and the suburbs used to reflect what was going on in sporting terms. So when Wimbledon was on, there'd be tennis in the streets. When cricket was on, there'd be rounders. And we used to replicate the horse show by putting up uh, stands in the back garden and pretending we were horses to jump over them and worshipping, you know, Tommy Drum and all that kind of stuff. Um, But it palled and by the time I got to secondary school uh, I was ready for it in the sense that nothing was going to get me onto a hockey pitch except once in the month of February, freezing cold, sleet coming at us, a very large girl coming at me with a stick and a small, very hard ball that I felt would do me enormous injury. So I got out of the way as quickly as I could. Um, I then tried volleyball, which seemed to be a gentler sort of thing. But not that I have any great mass on my fingernails. They're not great. But they did ruin your fingernails, those volleyballs. So I thought, I have to get out of this. So I invented women's problems, the cheek of me at the age of 13 to be thinking of women's problems. Um, And the nuns were too embarrassed to query this or to look for doctor's (laughs) certificates. So I ended up sitting in a room during the the sports um, events and uh, practice and training with another girl who I think had a similar idea that she put into practice. And we read French existentialist novels, not in French, I must say, smoked cigarettes, which we shouldn't have been doing, and had a wonderful time. So I came out of it with, unfortunately, a lifelong smoking habit. Do not smoke, girls. Do not smoke. Do not do what I did. For the third time, I am trying to give them up at the moment. I've got a big nicotine patch on my arm and it's murder. So don't get into it in the first place. I had a working knowledge of French existentialist literature, Sartre and Camus and Simone de Beauvoir, all very useful to you later in life, um, and a habit of indolence laziness and a capacity to deceive people to avoid (laughs) engaging in any activity I didn't want to do. So I'm sort of proud of it in the sense that it succeeded and that's always good. But on the other hand, we all know now that exercise is really important and here comes the virtuous part. 
all young women should get out there and play sport. And I have many friends who have young daughters who are out now, particularly playing GAA sports, because the GAA has opened up hugely to girls and women in, in recent years. And it does them nothing but good. It's all great. I think part of my problem is that I'm very anti-competitive. So I don't like the idea that there have to be losers. If I watch sport on television, I feel much sorrier for the losers than I feel glad for the winners. So that is probably a flaw in my character in the modern world where competition is everything and I should really address <laughs> it in some way. But I'm afraid it's too late now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I got out of doing all of that. Now, on the other hand, I have a spectator history, if not an engagement history. So there are things I can talk about in terms of um, being a spectator. Well, I'm going to hold you there because I'm interested in where you did direct your energies. If it wasn't in a sporting direction, you have described yourself before as a communist Mm -hmm. in your younger days. How does a kid growing up in Dublin in the 60s become a communist? Well, I read, I, I suppose I discovered class warfare and I've talked about this before when I went to secondary school. It hadn't occurred to me there were class differences in Ireland or anywhere uh, until I went to secondary school and I realised because I was a scholarship girl who came to my school, which was a very good school, Sign Hill in, in Black Rock, the Dominican nuns, excellent teachers, I got a good education from them. I realised that the girls who had gone to the fee-paying junior school were treated differently to those of us who came in later. They came into first year in secondary school I came into second year. For example, I couldn't do science, which really annoyed me. I had to do domestic science, which pissed me off enormously because I didn't care about rock buns. Who wants to make rock buns, for God's sake? And I can still remember the recipe to this day. Um, and knicker and slip sets, mother of God. Uh, anyway, all that went on. I wanted to be in the science lab where they had, if you don't mind, locusts, actual locusts in a, in a little glass cage. So I, and a, a series of patronising remarks Marks, well-intentioned from some of the nuns, uh, made me think about all of this. And I asked questions at home and I was told to, that, that there was nothing wrong, it was all grand. So I found the Communist Manifesto in the school library of all places <laughs> and read it. And of course it is. I mean, Marx is a, a sort of impenetrable prose writer. Very few people can truthfully say they have read Das Kapital from start to finish. But the Communist Manifesto is short and pithy and wonderful. Um, and I'm, that did change things for I'm me. actually a bit surprised that it was in school library. I mean, I'm surprised that it wasn't banned. Uh, like, yeah. I, I don't know if I'm right in saying that becoming a communist in, in, in Ireland in the 60s would have been regarded as kind of quite deviant. Like, you know, not only politically suspect, but, you know, uh, irre- irreligious. Um, Treasonous? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, fairly... People would have been like... Worrying about you. Well, all those terms are music to my ears, and certainly <laughs> when I was an adolescent, it was just wonderful. Adolescents want to be contrary to the established order. Everybody knows that. We all were there at one stage. We don't want to be the same as everybody else. We object to the older generation who have left things in a mess, as far as we're concerned. And we look for radical solutions. As we get older, we mellow and realize that the radical solutions may not be the best ones. But I knew a lot of actual communists later on in my life. I hung out with a lot of people who are members of the Irish Communist Party. And you're absolutely right. In the 1960s, the special branch were following people around all the time. They were regarded as treasonous, dangerous and subversive. But to me, that was all the better. It was grist to my mill. So there's no point in saying, was I afraid? No, I wasn't. I was delighted. I was hoping the special branch would start following <laughs> yeah, me. Fellas yeah. in anoraks. So is this, is this what, what attracted you to it? I mean, I wonder what you found appealing about it. Like, is it was it the sort of 
moral sense that well, obviously this is the this is, would be a fair way to organize society, or was it kind of the countercultural element of it? Like this is the opposite of what we've got in this country. Um, it's a lot more. It's kind of more glamorous. It's more you know if policemen are following you around, well you know. Yeah, there was a certain amount of transgressive glamour about all of that 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 was appealing. But I suppose part of me has a flawed capacity to believe that organisation can solve things. You can't solve the human species just by organisation. But I felt the communist ideal looked like a reasonable way for everyone to get enough and for no one to have too much which seemed to me to be a reasonable proposition at that age. Um, of course, when we look at the history of communism in the 20th century, it is a disaster. Uh, and as I got older, I became much more of a social democrat. You, you know, you obviously were drawn to this kind of um, left-wing politics, mm-hmm. but very few of the Irish people, I mean, I mean, clearly plenty of Irish people have been you know, involved in left-wing politics uh, over the years, but if you look at the election results, it doesn't translate into a lot of votes, or it hasn't historically. Why, why, did, what, why did it attract you, but not uh, significant numbers of other Irish people? Well, the Civil War is a very big reason for it. Um, the, the two main parties that we still have today are products of the Civil War. Um, we shouldn't underestimate the effect that violent conflict has on people's psyches over quite a long period of time. People get entrenched into various silos, depending on which side they took in. And civil wars are the most atrocious of all conflicts because they set uh, people against each other in the same place. And that always, the Spanish Civil War is still having its effects to this day, which happened uh, a decade later than ours did. Um, There is quite a considerable left-wing vote in Ireland. The problem is that it's fractured. How many different parties do we have? I've lost count of people who proclaim to be on the left, many of whom are at each other's throats. One of the other repercussions of the Civil War, Katrina, was the loss of history. I mean, quite literally, the historical documents that were lost in that time, which is a story that I wasn't aware of really until until reading up on this in the last few days. Can you tell us exactly what happened back then? Okay. well, the the Public Record Office, which is now the National Archives, was established in 1867 to care for the records of the Irish state, including ecclesiastical records, which were part of the records of the state until the Church of Ireland was disestablished in the late 19th century. They were all gradually stored in a purpose-built repository in the Four Courts complex, the Public Record Office, and lots of stuff poured in uh, year after year. Scholars began to go in and read the material. It's the beginning of proper Irish historiography, how historians find sources to uh, give evidence for what they're saying. A very important point in these days of fake news. Where is your evidence? How do you know what you know? This is how you know what you know. There's documentary evidence there to support your assertions and uh, in 1922 we have the occupation of the four courts at the beginning of the civil war uh, with Rory O'Connor and Ernie O'Malley the two major commanders there so uh, they had put some shells in the public record office sort of magazine and a shell from outside hit those and the biggest explosion ever seen before or since in Dublin happens so 800 years of Irish history it's not 800 years of oppression it's 800 years of Irish administrative history flies up in the air some pieces of parchment come down as far away as Hoth people were bringing in bits of stuff for months and years after us that they had found lying about. And it is a gig- We did it to ourselves. We cannot blame the British. It was a ferocious tragedy. So it's often said that Ireland doesn't have a history. It has a mythology. 
because the gaps left by that destruction, the most serious gaps were those left by the destruction of the early census records. So the, the, we started taking census, uh, censuses here in Ireland in 1821. 1821, 31, 41 and 51 were blown to smithereens in in that explosion. If we had the 1841 census, we would know the names and occupations and all sorts of wonderful details of every single person who lived on this island before the famine. Eight million people. We don't. Yeah, just briefly on that, actually, about the famine, do you think that the destruction of those censuses alone, do you think that feeds into a refusal nearly on our part to deal with the famine in any real way. The, the idea that we, we don't talk about the famine, we don't know what happened in the famine. There's kind of a, a collective decision to not talk about the famine in any real way at all. Do you think that the destruction of those records actually feeds into that? Is that like Well, a- I, I think you may be wrong in the sense that there is plenty of research on the famine now. Mm. And a lot of it emerged from the 1995 anniversary when scholars started to look at the whole situation again. There are a lot of really wonderful local studies on the famine. There's much more to be done. Uh, there are still debates about how many died and where and how. There are still debates about the complexity of who did well out of it, who benefited from mm. the famine. But a lot of, of uh, Catholicism, remember, is advancing uh, a pace throughout the 19th century. Catholic emancipation in 1829 is a big moment. And you're starting to see the build-up of a Catholic middle class. And there's plenty of evidence of Catholic hoarding of grain, for example, to let prices go up. So the idea of, of this uh, religious solidarity that might have been there isn't necessarily true. It's also not necessarily true that all Anglo-Irish, as we call them, land- landlords, uh, betrayed their tenants, allowed them to starve. Some of them, in fact, died trying to, to help their tenants. Some of them were very generous. I think really what you're getting at is it's not so much the destruction of the records, which really would have helped us, there's no doubt about that, to know more about, about uh, who, was, who was killed and who, um, or who died and who left and who survived. But the enormous trauma of a million people dying in a very short period of time does affect succeeding generations. You have survivor guilt. We know a lot more about this now since people have started looking at post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, survivor guilt, traumatic memories that, that are very difficult to confront, bereavement and loss, which is huge in, in the post-famine period. That is what stops people talking. We have the same syndrome after the Civil War, by the way, where a lot of people simply didn't want to talk about it. Why do you think history is important in 2019? History isn't just important in 2019. It's important at all times. It's important because it teaches us a lesson that very few other things do, which is how to evaluate evidence. We are living in an era of absolute nonsense pouring at us from all directions, particularly on social media. And it's really, really dangerous if you do not teach people how to evaluate the information that they're getting. How do you know that? Is probably one of the most important questions anyone can ask. I spend a lot of time talking to people in my local bar sometimes about the fact that 9-11 was planned by the American government. You know, you cannot have people making things up and spreading them around as if they were gospel. Another example of this, which is really dangerous, is the anti-vaccination campaign, which is going on. Like, vaccination is probably the biggest public health piece of genius that we ever had, saving people from multiple diseases that used to wipe them out. And children who get measles can die. So history teaches us, if if we get that into us at an early age, this is how you know this. 
The reason we know there was a famine is because here is the document written by the parish priest in this parish in Roscommon in 1847 that gives you figures for the people who died, that describes people eating grass at the side of the road because they were so hungry, um, that tells you who was emigrating. Here are the documents. Here's the information. That is augmented later by oral history, which is a growing field where you have people's own testimonies uh, telling you what happened. Again, all of the, no source is untainted. Most of them have an agenda of one sort or another. Learning again how to distinguish between those different sources and voices is a way to educate you for dealing with life. It is not a luxury, it is a necessity. You mentioned vaccines, and people yeah. don't believe in vaccines, yeah. which is like the most, uh, it's hard to think of a more cut and dried case of, well, this clearly works, mm -hmm. than, than the history of, of sort of life expectancy in public health since vaccination. Okay, the evidence is pretty compelling, and yet lots of people, increasing numbers of people, don't believe it. So if that's the case with something as, as kind of, you know, to, to my mind, it's a, it's a closed case, but evidently to, to some people, and how can, how can sort of, if you, if you take history, if you take sort of uh, historians' interpretations of what happened in the past based on what can be inferred from the fragments of evidence that remain. How can anyone possibly be per persuaded to take that seriously? Uh, an example that occurs to me is, uh, I was in Kiev last year, and uh, there's a big historical project going on there in the middle of Kiev where in 2014 they had these shootings. Um, there was the, pro the Euromaidan protests, and then there was, you know, there was a huge crowd gathered there. They were there for weeks and weeks. And then it ended in this, in, in, in shootings that, you know, more than 100 people were killed, snipers on the rooftops. There were thousands of people there. There were, you know, thousands of witnesses. There were, there were people with, with mobile phones, there's video footage, you know, and yet nobody can agree what really happened there. You know, there's people say, well, this was forces loyal to the government. And then others, people are saying, well, no, this is actually the, the sort of the protesters or, or the sort of anti-government side doing a, a provocation. And even despite the fact that this is a recent event with <laughs> tens of thousands of witnesses, loads and loads of evidence, nobody can agree on, a, on what really happened. And, and people will, will actually provide evidence. I mean, this has been, I think the New York Times did a big project on it, and obviously the government in Kiev is, has, is setting up their version of what happened. But people just will choose not to believe that. It's like, well, we all know that the government will lie about this. You know, we all... Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? The it's words the we impossibility all know are of, really dangerous words. We all know. Mm. How do you know? Is the answer to that always, how do you know? Everybody knows. No, they don't. Like, you have to have evidence for, for, for what you're saying. Now, if somebody makes that assertion, this didn't happen or it happened in a different way to the way that you think it happened or that the New York Times, having done a proper investigative uh, uh, project on it, say, um, we have to know why they think it didn't happen in the way that they've described. What evidence can you adduce against the proposition that it happened in this particular way. Unless we learn to have those conversations, and unfortunately, the whole maelstrom of madness on social media, I have never done Facebook or Twitter, and I never will, because in the beginning, I didn't believe that I should give any information to major multinational corporations and make Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey richer than they already are. They don't need it. And I certainly don't want to be handing out stuff. And then it became clear that the levels of idiocy and anger and madness that are showing up on these things. Is, uh, who has time for that? Nobody.
Mm. Um, but because of so that, 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 that sort of tidal flood of like um, information and uh, assertion and emotion and all of the all of the stuff that kind of makes up the atmosphere that we now inhabit, mm-hmm. how what what place is there left for sort of forensic investigation of things in the in the in the distant past and even you could also argue what what relevance does it now have in in a world which is so different in a world which is shaped by these technologies that didn't exist mm-hmm. um when 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 you study the past pe- people often talk about history it's important to understand the past in order to understand the present but i honestly don't see how understanding most of the past up to this point tells you anything about the present as it, as it currently is. Which oh it's, we're kind of into uncharted territory. Oh, dear. What happened to you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't How do you not think here. that understanding the Great Depression, the golden age in uh, late 19th century Europe and America, which is very similar to what we're experiencing now, the result of it, the Great Depression and the responses to it, have nothing to teach us now. Te- new technologies have always arrived and caused alarm and interest and enthusiasm and opposition. But, ne- but, but never before this kind of acceleration. Like say earlier, you, you talked about when you were in Clare <laughs> to live life as it, as it had been lived by people for hundreds of years. And now it's like, you know, people's lives bear little relation to that of their parents, let alone their grandparents. You know what I mean? That, like that's, that's a new development. That's, that's something which, which hasn't happened before in all of history. It is a new development, but time is relative too. People who were displaced from the land when the Industrial Revolution began in the middle of the 18th century found that to be hugely accelerated and frightening and worrying, who were removed from centuries of, of a lifestyle that they were used to into the middle of smoky industrial cities where they had to work for low wages and where their standard of living went way down, but they had no option. Um, they had to deal with that. That, for them, seemed like a very quick transition. We, we have to understand that time is relative to different experiences of how it operates. And here we are used to, that now we are used to a much speeded up version of time and a 24-7 version of information, mm. which I think is the key issue, that you're never off. There's never a time when you sit back and say, actually, I'm not engaging with any screen now for you know, a good long time. Yeah. I've had enough. I want to read a book. Yeah. Uh, you're taking information differently from printed page and from a book and through the ears differently. We know all of this. So how do people want to get accurate information about the world around them is the real question. And that would include not just history, and I, I would certainly tell you that even the study of ancient history has a vast amount to, to tell us about how our species has developed over time, about ideas of, of, of power and downfall, about empires that rise and fall, about the lives of ordinary people who had to endure all of this and manage often very ingeniously to keep up with it. All of this is both inspirational and educational and useful. Um, and it, it, I am a fanatic for history. It fascinates me. I would just as easily read a book about the Stone Age as I would about the 18th century or the 20th century and be very happy to do so. There's so much we don't know and so much yet to be discovered. Mm. That to me is wonderful. Yeah. That weren't, There are mysteries still all over the historical landscape that are there for us to investigate and to find out about with proper evidence. Do you worry, do you worry that, that history is, is shrinking in terms of um, what we know about the past is we could still find out uh, obviously a lot of new things, mm-hmm. but it is difficult 
compared to what we know about the present and the very recent past, which is, say, there are some unbelievable statistics in terms of sort of the sum total of data uh, in in civilization, you know, sort of 90% of which has been produced in the last two years. Yes, but most of it is useless. Oh, completely. But it's yeah, there. But see, you're, you're, you're not making a valid point. If what you've got is a tsunami of useless information, the trick is to discriminate between it and maybe the 10% that actually means something that yeah. has value. Well, what, yeah. what is your point? Well, if, if, you know, say say there's like 65... I don't want to fight with you about that. Oh, no, not at all. This is a robust. I, I feel it also will go off air as well. You're just going to have to hang around for a few hours to teach Ken about the value of history. But, but there's like... No, no, so we haven't gone anywhere near sport yet. Oh, we're getting there. We're in there. <laughs> there's like 65 years worth of new videos put on YouTube every day. Yeah. You know, it would take you 65 years to watch if you didn't sleep. Like... Does this kind of what I, what I mean is if if your aim was to understand what uh, human beings are like, mm. surely the study of this evidence which exists is now more relevant than the study of the past, which of about which you can know so little. Well, could I draw your attention to the fact that most of the world is not online? Oh, I don't what think that's not true anymore. No, no. Most people are not. They have mobile phones, mobile perhaps, phones, okay. in certain places. But most people are not participating. Most of the human population are not participating in YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. Mm. They're actually getting on with quite seriously impoverished lives and trying to survive and look after their families. Um, and yes, as someone who believes in the democratization of history, it's always interesting to look at, at the broad spectrum of what the human race is up to and how they express themselves. But that is something that's going to have to develop as, as something that makes selections over time, uh, where there are things we will keep. Although, you know, electronic storage of records is the most fragile storage mechanism we have ever invented. And it could all go very, very quickly to nothing. Um, stone was the best way to preserve information. Parchment is pretty good. You know, hides that were cured. Parchment uh, documents survive in very good nick up to now. After that, we move on to making paper out of rags and textiles. Very good nick at 18th century documents that we have in the National Archives. Beautiful, still in good order. Then the rainforests start to perish and we make acid-based wood pulp paper. And that starts to disintegrate very quickly. And now we've decided on the genius idea that all our information is going to be electronic. What happens if we have a, a, a nuclear war? Well, we've got a lot of problems. Yeah, but it may, nuclear wars can be selective. Suppose Sellafield went up. The electromagnetic pulse might have a gigantic effect on the uh, east coast of Ireland. We might have real trouble with a whole lot of stuff going. So I don't trust this. I think we may have a, a very flawed golden age of human expression, most of which is nonsense, unfortunately. Um, some of which is wonderful. I mean, there, there are wonderful moments that you get from the whole explosion of, of social media and the internet as, a, as something Tim Berners-Lee never envisaged being what it is now. I mean, is it an advantage that we now have a vast amount of porn on the internet? that You simply can't avoid it. People seem to find it useful. They do. I wonder why. <laughs> um, and there's a huge debate to be had about that, particularly from a feminist perspective. But um, we won't get into that now. Ken, are you any more convinced in the value of history? I don't know. I mean, in the presence of Katrina Crow here, Ireland's foremost archivist. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm more convinced than I was. I mean, I, I, want, I want Katrina to be right. I, I mean, I like reading history. I'm just not sure that... You sound cynical. It sounds like the last number of years of 
ground you down a little bit. Because they've completely destroyed, completely <laughs> 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 unmoored me from uh, any understanding I thought I had of, of the world. So it's a process. Sure, believe in me. If what I'm saying is correct. You're fine. <laughs> History is worthwhile and you should pursue it. That sounds fair enough. That actually sounds like a knockout blow to me, Katrina. I'm going to have to declare you the winner of this particular debate, which should give you all the confidence you need to take on the next part of the programme. Because after the break, right here on Second Cup on Saturday, we are going to break down this sporting life of Katrina Crow. Captain, first captain, whatever. It's always lovely to hear from you guys on Twitter at Second Captains or by text on 51551. You're listening to Second Captain Saturday with Owen, Ken and Murph. And we've been enjoying this morning the wonderful company of Katrina Crow. We've gone deep, Katrina, on your lifelong passion for history. Now let's talk sport. Okay. Happy to do this? Yes, as a negative force in the sporting <laughs> arena. <laughs> well, you have um, outlined your lack of interest <laughs> as a child. If you could, if you could go back to speak to ten-year-old Katrina Crow, what would you would you say? Get it? Because I mean, some just some kids, boys and girls aren't into sport. It's not a, not a big deal, obviously. Mm. Would you Would you have done it differently back then? Probably not. Yeah. But you know, on the other hand, I'd probably be in better nick now if I if I had been playing sports when I was uh, ten uh, and up to and through my teens. Um, I mean, I was still walking around in reasonable shape. But you know, the one thing I would like to say is, even if, whether you play or don't play sport, don't smoke. So that's the one thing I would say. I started smoking in my early teens and went on for many many years. Gave them up for ten years. Relapsed gave them up again, relapsed, and here I am on the third time trying to defeat the beast. So don't do that. And sport, I think, is one way to stop you from doing it because the people who train you are very anti-smoking and they give you very good and cogent reasons why you shouldn't do it. And I certainly know that a lot of the younger girls I see now really abhor smoking and think it's shocking and they regard me as a kind of a pariah. And fair play to them, they're right. Um, So, yeah, on the other hand... I, you know, I really didn't like the competitive thing. I found it sort of ludicrous. <laughs> well, it probably is. And, uh, well, no, I mean, if sport were a replacement for war, it would be tremendous because all those competitive, aggressive instincts could be got out of people on the, the pitch and mm. wherever. But it's not. It's an addition to it. And um, I'm not anti-sport. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the GAA. Uh and I, I think my father, as 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 uh, as we will talk about, was hugely involved in in the GAA, and I love the Clare Hurling team, and I have great reverence for Gerlach Nan, wherever he is now, um, who made them win the All Ireland final in 1995. That was a great atavistic moment of joy, but for me, no. I mean. I have backed horses a lot in my time, but that's not sporting. <laughs> it's watching fantastic creatures who, if they could speak, would be saying, get off my back. <laughs> um, you know, Jonathan Swift made no mistake when he made his wonderful uh, whinhams in Gulliver's Travels. Horses, the highest form of evolutionary development on the planet, were horses. And we have the cheek to stick fellas in nice silk outfits <laughs> up on the top of them and back them as they run around these, these race courses. But going to the races is tremendous fun, and I always enjoyed it. I've, I'm going to start doing it again, actually, because I gave it up far too early. Where were you in '95? Then you mentioned the All Ireland win. I was in Dublin. Um, I watched it on television. The other thing about about matches is you can really see them much better on TV. Yeah. 
because the, the TV cameras have got more and more sophisticated and they can follow what's happening. And the ball in hurling is quite small, so it's hard to watch. And my eyesight isn't very good. But um, this was the culmination for my family of many, many trips down to Clare over the barren years of the 1970s and the 1980s. My brother, my father, a school, fre- a school teacher friend of theirs, my brother, my father, and a school teacher friend of theirs, and a man called John Brady, who later emigrated to Canada and became a famous crime novelist, used to get into my father's ancient jalopy and journey down to Tulla, which was the headquarters of the Clare hurling team um, when they were exiled from uh, Ennis for 10 years and watch year after year as uh, they did very well in the league but they couldn't prosper otherwise and my brother who's alas no longer with us told a story of Gerlach Nan who was playing on that team uh, on the occasion of one defeat he thinks by Cork kneeling down on the pitch and banging his hurley off the ground and swearing to God in heaven <laughs> that he was going to get into Croke Park with the Clare hurling team one day and win the All-Ireland and sure enough it came yeah. to pass mm. um, yeah, so Men of destiny on. Katrina you know history is full of men of destiny you know. Manifest destiny. The, the curse of Biddy Early, which survived for 81 years, according to Sherlock Nan, there was no curse of Biddy Early. She was a really lovely woman and she was a healer and she would never do a thing like that. <laughs> and his opinion was that this was just an excuse for laziness and lack of training, <laughs> the curse of Biddy Early. Anyway, it went on for 81 years, which is the longest any team in the country had to wait before they won the All-Ireland again, 1914 to 1995. So even though I wasn't that interested in sport, I was stirred by the achievement of the Clare Hurling team. And my favourite player was James e. O'Connor, who was a fellow with blonde hair who'd come out onto the pitch and he would seem to be asleep for a while and then suddenly he'd wake up and score six points one after another. <laughs> I thought this was utterly magical. Uh, and then they won again in 97 and then in 2013. And, and it was all wonderful. And you were watching these games in the presence of your dad? No, my brother went to stay with my dad in 1995 to watch it. I would think I was in a pub in Gardner Street watching it. Um... And he told me yesterday that my father was so nervous uh, during the whole thing. He had a heart condition, so he had his spray for his angina held in his fist in case he'd have a heart attack from the, the absolute excitement of all of this and had to leave the room once or twice to calm himself down and did say afterwards, I can die happy now. <laughs> Claire had won the All-Ireland. And he lived to see the 1997 victory. Right. Uh, and then died in 99. So it was wonderful for him to have seen this culmination of all his years of going down to futile defeats and um, the Clare shout and uh, Putching Punch and stuff like that that they used to have for picnics on the way back. So all lovely. Putching Punch. The, the, the regulation picnic for these trips down to the bog were um, smoked mackerel, baked with stuffing uh, eaten with brown bread and putching punch and I can't find out where my dad got the putching I suspect it was somewhere in Clare so these were in the days before drunken driving became a thing that you weren't supposed to do and he was abstemious it must be said the rest of them I can't answer for but an interesting side effect to this is that the main pub in Tulla is Minogue's pub I think it's still there and they always went there after the match to have a drink and my brother Michael was a primary school teacher and they'd come in and there'd be people six deep at the bar my brother discovered at an early stage that there was a voice called the primary school teacher's voice, which would put a subconscious fear of God into anyone who'd gone to primary school in Ireland. Can you do it? Uh, I can't. If he was here, <laughs> alas, he could. Michael, wherever you are, 
Um, so he would shout out like three pints of stout and a bowl of malt in that voice <laughs> and the barman would freeze and suddenly <laughs> like an automaton get it and he was tall as well so th- this would be handed out over the very aggrieved other customers <laughs> but John Brady who was observing all this made his main detective in all of his crime novels a man called Matt after my father Minogue after the pub uh, a Clare man uh, carrying out his duties as a detective in Dublin so we're very proud of that that my father is <laughs> memorialised as an intelligent Clare detective in John's novels. Is it true that you also spent a summer in Manchester in the late 1960s with the express mission to follow George Best around the place? Not really. That, we, that we, can ex- be... we can exaggerate for effect. Yeah, Who cares I about guess. truth and accuracy of history? <laughs> let's, let's, let's jazz it up as much as we want. No, I think every girl in the world was in love with George Best in the 1960s. He was the fifth Beatle. He was gorgeous. And yes, I was crazy about him. And my uncle lived in Manchester. He emigrated there in 1941. Now, he was a communist in the 1940s and then shifted to the Labour Party. So there, there was uh, history there in my family of this. So I stayed with him for a few weeks and and what was lovely was it was the old, old Trafford before the modern corporate glitz set in, before all of that happened. So Matt Busby was the manager of the team. On Saturday afternoons, the whole city would stop and everyone would walk through the town to the, the stadium. And there we would watch the extraordinary 1968 team with Dennis Law and Nobby Styles and Bobby Charge and all what these a, What a time to be there. Literally people. the best time possibly in history you could be at Manchester United. I know, yeah. I was absolutely blessed. I was 16 years old and I was crazy about George. But I suddenly understood what good soccer was <laughs> because here was this genius just weaving his way around everybody, having enormous fun on the field. I have never seen anything like it, ever. And not alone was he gorgeous, he was incredibly talented and uh, just wonderful. I've, I've always thought I, I, I would bump into him someday in the street and he would see me and fall madly in love with me and that would be my life sorted out. And I know he's a womanizer, but you know, I can fix him. And I know he's a drunkard, but I can fix that too. Oh, the delusions of adolescence. And I did see him once outside the Shambles, which was the main sort of old Elizabethan bar in, in, in Manchester at the time. But I was far too nervous and starstruck to go and say anything to him. So I missed my chance. Who knows what might have happened? Tell us the programme of events you're putting on at the moment in Galway at the International Arts Festival. Features sport. The the programme in Galway does feature sport. Uh, We will have this evening a discussion on the GAA and Brexit uh, and the border. Uh, So we're going to have very interesting people discussing the whole business of how the border will be affected, the whole question of a border poll. What does the GAA think about all of this as an organisation that isn't just a huge sporting organisation, but in many ways the social glue of the island keeps people together in all kinds of ways, transforms local communities uh, and so on. And then tomorrow we're going to have a more broad philosophical discussion, if you like, about whether sport is a divisive and a unifying factor in Ireland. We'll be looking at, again, class, gender, how has sport operated for women? And on that subject, when we look at Megan Rapino, there's a role model for young women who are interested in sport. You're impressed with, with, for people who weren't following that story, Megan Rapino was the superstar of the US team that won the Women's World Cup recently and also got into a war of words with President Trump over the course of the tournament as well. But she's, yeah, she's a big 
activist for, for women's rights and, and human rights and all the rest. And also for equal pay for yeah. sportswomen, uh, which is a really wonderful thing. She's a splendid individual with purple hair and she's eloquent uh, and interesting and someone that we can all look up to and, and admire. A, a good footballer who banged in a lot of goals. Excellent. Most footballer. importantly, of course, is uh, able course. to stick a ball in the back of the net. You know, it was actually my male football fan friends who told me to watch the women's football. And I thought that was an interesting development too. They weren't feeling threatened. They thought it was brilliant. They loved it. Uh, and I did watch some of it and it certainly was very good football. Yeah, no, it did feel like a, a big moment for women's football. All right, I think we have more than enough data now, both current and historical, to get this done. Murph, would you please now come to the highlight of the programme and rank this sporting life of Katrina Crow? You don't understand. I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. What do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Okay, Katrina, you know what's coming. It's I expect rank. a zero, by the way, and I won't be disappointed. Well, it's not a zero. You'll, you'll be happy to hear. It's time to rank your all-time sporting highlight, identify the sports star who most closely resembles your sporting personality, and then through a highly scientific process, come up with a score out of 100 and see if that score is enough for you to become Ireland's greatest non-sports person sports person for 2019. <laughs> Senator George Mitchell was our guest last week. He scored 81 points, so that's what you have to beat. Now, your, your all-time sporting highlight is... A little off kilter, I, I I think it's fair to say, in that your skills resided mostly in the area of sport avoidance <laughs> when dodging PE in school to go read existentialist novels was your sole concern. At least when you decided sport wasn't for you, you spent your time reading Heidegger, Nietzsche, Kafka, all of them utterly, utterly useless at sport, but at least it was food for the soul. And of course it means that the sports person you must remind us of is easy, a young French Algerian goalkeeper from the 1930s by the name of Albert Camus. For him, the simplistic morality of football contradicted the complicated morality imposed by authorities, such as the state and church. But he was also pretty terrible on corners, so you can't have it everywhere. (laughs) You told lies to nuns, he contracted TB, and neither of you went on to great sporting success. But you did pretty darn well in your respective fields, nevertheless. So listen, I'm not going to lie to you, the score is low, but the chats have been amazing. So let's say 75 points and be done with it. Happy enough. This has been your sporting life. I think that is ridiculously generous. <laughs> well, we're a generous You're going bunch. to undermine the credibility of your programme with this. But I'm very happy to accept 75. Katrina, okay. you've been brilliant. Thank you so much for coming in. Round of applause for Katrina Crow, please. About you this morning on my break from the office. Susan made me a coffee. She was embarrassed and awkward. Couldn't steady my breathing. I keep my heart in my pocket. Spill my goods to the bookie. I meant to reach for my wallet. I needed you help my mind. 
brilliant tune from a young Irish artist. That's Kojak featuring Keen Kavanagh and Eviction Notice from his debut album, Delhi Daydreams. Not that Ken heard much of that song as he was still deep in conversation with Katrina Crowe, even as she walked out the door. I should say, Ken, for the record, that you are extremely intellectually curious. You have read plenty of history. Just in case your history teacher from you're, school happens yeah. to be listening, bashing their... Oh, he'd be, he'd be very upset. Oh. You're an agent provocateur. Yeah, yeah that's, all, that's all you are. I mean, you know. That's what I'm here for, just to take a pace thing. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to be in Galway this weekend and want to attend those talks that Katrina was talking about, by the way, you can pick up the tickets on the festival's website, giaf.ie. That's giaf.ie. Loads of reaction to the brilliant Katrina Crow. Terrific as always to hear Katrina. Great and urgent conversation. Says one listener, never heard Katrina speak before, but she's an absolute gem of information and common sense. One of the most articulate people I've heard in a long time. This is exactly the kind of intellectually challenging brain food I need of a Saturday. More, please. Uh, where are we here? Katrina Crow is a fab interviewee. Delighted to tune in and hear her unique voice and the clarity of her arguments. Definitely one of my heroes. What about the clarity of Ken's arguments? Why don't you text in about that, Paula? <laughs> well, That's Paula the Nolan is definitely in. got the clarity of Ken's argument, I'm well, afraid. Ju- ju- <laughs> just to think that Katrina Crow... It's more impressionistic, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. clarity is what you were going for. Another one it's says, just a feeling, Ken. You know, I've got to text her just to think that Katrina Crow could have saved Georgie Best. Wonderful, what a wonderful thought. Well, actually, I have been doing a bit of historical research of my own, guys. Oh, this, go on. I have this document in front of me. You can have a look at. Oh, that's a, well. That's, a, that's this is first-hand history. Yeah, as it's well. a Manchester United Manchester United match program from the time Katrina was over there. Man United versus Man City, March 1968. Had a look through this program. Bought it in a sort of flea market a couple of years back. My favourite bit is a little sidebar detailing all the family members who were at the airport to welcome the team home from. A recent European win in Poland, right? Okay. So there's, there's loads of photographs and the captions underneath say, for Nobby Styles, a greeting from his small son, John. For Bobby Charlton, a reunion with his wife, Norma. But for Bachelors, Best and Ryan, <laughs> it was a time for relaxation. Perhaps their time will come later! <laughs> Exclamation mark. I've got to say, Best is looking pretty relaxed, as is Ryan, about their mm. Bachelor status yeah. Yeah. in the photograph. No sign no of Katrina we can, let, we can let this ride for another, you know, couple of years. No sign of Katrina Crow chasing after Best in the background either. Yeah. It should probably be, be made. Mm. There. Thanks so much for all your reactions. There's loads more that I don't have time to get through. Uh, please do enjoy the rest of your weekend. We've got to wrap things up here in the next minute or two. And enjoy the golf if you are watching. Hopefully Shane Lowry will do the business. If you want a bit more of us or a lot more of us, you can check out the uh, Second Captain's World Service. Find out more about that on secondcaptains.com. We broadcast daily from our own shows. We'll see you back here next Saturday morning. A big thanks to Killian Down for researching, to Tom Norton on sound today, Mark Horgan and Simon Hick who produced this show. Marion Finucane is up next. We will, as I mentioned, see you next week. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the weekend.